the rise of questions of genealogy or ancestry began to come to the forefront of the Western mind, specifically here in the United States, in about 2009-2010, as companies like Ancestry.com, MyHeritage.com, and FamilySearch began monetizing the quest for answers as the fashion, fascination grew with family origin. So fast forward to now, to 2024, and you can very easily swab the inside of your cheek or you can send in a blood sample and find out after DNA tests are ran, who is in your family tree. So this week I Googled crazy ancestry stories and came upon an article that asked an online community about the results that they had received from these DNA tests and what resulted was, let's just say, interesting. One story, and these were all anonymous, one story was that this person found out that their cousin was actually their half-sister. Another was out of seven siblings, none of them had the same father. And at the end of this it said, really, mom? Lastly, and there were hundreds of stories here, one person found out that they, had act, they were actually related to a classmate and they had both been put up for adoption. Troubling to say the least. But there is a deep desire inside all of us to know where we come from. Maybe to know where our dad's family originated or from, where, from which country your mom's family migrated. We could have famous distant relatives or even infamous great-great-grandparents. In many of us, there is a longing to know what your family may have endured to get where they are now. And those questions can be haunting, but the question inside the mind of every person on this planet has, is, or will be at some point, where do I come from? Where do I originate from? And then that question leads to a few others, such as, What's my purpose? What is truth? Who defines truth? And lastly, what happens after I die? And I hope I don't send you into an existential tailspin, but those four questions are what humanity has wrestled with for centuries. So let's think personally for just a moment. Which one of those questions have you thought about for some time now? Maybe it's from where do I come from? Or what's my purpose here on planet Earth? Or who defines truth? Or what happens after I die? If you, if you have, if you've wrestled with one of those questions or are wrestling with them now, my question is, where do you go for answers? So today, we will spend the majority of our time thinking through the reason Genesis was written. As we said earlier, we're starting a new series called Genesis from the Beginning. Remember, context is key for interpreting a book or even a passage in the Bible. We can very easily fall into the snare of making the Bible about us if we do not approach it the way it was meant to be approached, as an ancient book that is still relevant today because it is living and active. Look at Hebrews chapter four 
Hebrews 4, verse 12. This is a good one to have underlined and all those things. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So if you claim to be a Christian, you must surrender to the authority of the Lordship of Christ and His Word. And listen, this is not a popular view among evangelicals today. This is one of the reasons we have so many denominations who have bent to the will of culture as to not offend anyone or draw dividing lines. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4. He's speaking to his son in the faith, Timothy, here. 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 3, says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I wonder how many people you know who have wandered off into myths or have itching ears and they have accumulated for themselves false teachers. Listen, the gospel itself is a dividing line. The gospel is offensive to the sinful and prideful person. To hear that you cannot save yourself or merit salvation is deeply offensive to those who are opposed to God, of whom we all once were before being saved. There should be an ongoing offense even as we grow in our relationship with Christ. But listen, not an offense that we grow bitter and angry towards God but one that we gradually see our need for a Savior and Lord who is Christ Himself. May we be more offended that we have offended a holy God with our sin than we be offended that He won't give us our way. So with a book like Genesis, there are many questions to pose and to answer some of which biblical scholars and hermeneutical experts are still answering to this day about a book that is at the beginning of sacred scripture. Remember, the Bible is a library or a collection of books, 66 books broken up into two sections known as the Old and New Testaments. The question is, testaments about who? Not you and me. These are not testaments about you and me. They are testaments about God. A testimony about the Lord God who is at work even in our world today. He was at work then, he is at work now, and will continue to, the, to work the way he always has. Listen, the Bible is a testament of God's faithfulness from the beginning. And listen, church, look at me for just a moment. God has no plans to stop being faithful. He's been faithful from the beginning and will continue to be faithful even to the end of the age. So we took over a year to preach verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, 2022, 
all the way into 2023, which is in the New Testament. 16 chapters of a testament to the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was about his earthly ministry. It was written by the hand of Mark, who was likely a disciple of the apostle Peter, who would have been, Peter would have been testifying of all that he saw Christ do. Listen, this was an eyewitness accounting and intended to be a parallel to the other three gospel narratives, specifically Matthew and Luke. It was meant to to bolster these accounts with some overlap. So we approach the gospel of Mark as the divine, yes, the divine and inspired word of God, but not every book in the Bible is to be approached as the gospel of Mark. Listen, yes, all 66 books are the exact same as far as inspiration, sufficiency, authority, and inerrancy go, but there are different genres. So each one is to be read with gospel lenses on our face and keeping in mind that each book is to be read as different literature. So these are different genres that we must approach. One main author who inspired many authors over 1,500 years. Listen, this is what makes the Bible so fascinating. One author inspired many authors over 1,500, over a 1,500 year period. And each book is different. So as we approach Genesis, we're not going to approach Genesis the way we approach Mark recently, or even the way we approach Job, or when we approach James, we're going to approach Genesis differently. So even though we're going back to the Old Testament from a New Testament gospel narrative, we need both testaments, both both Old and New Testaments, to be the complete and infallible Word of God. Listen, I don't care what any popular preacher says, we can't unhitch one from the other. Dr. John Piper says, the authors of the Old Testament books stood on their tiptoes to see what the New Testament would bring. They stood on their tiptoes to see what the New Testament would bring. And how incredible is it that we live in the day and age when we have the complete canon of Scripture, we have all of it, to read and interpret. And now we, church, we stand on our tiptoes as we long for what we have not yet seen, the return of Christ and his kingdom. So there's so much to Genesis, trust me as I've studied it, that it would take years for us to unearth all that God has inspired. And we're gonna do our very best over the next few months to journey through this massive narrative. And listen, we've got some, uh, <clears throat> we've got some opportunities planned for you guys. Uh, for some Redeemer equips that uh, we'd love for you to come so you can do some more in-depth study as far as Genesis goes. So we're looking forward to those Redeemer equips. Just be looking for those announcements. So I want to give you context, okay? So if you're a note taker, get your pen ready and your your notepad ready or whatever you've got, an ESV scripture journal. Uh, I'm going to give you context for the book of Genesis. So the first question is, what genre is Genesis. 
First and foremost, primarily, it is historical narrative. Yet it has other elements intertwined, like poetry, it's got prophecy, and yes, even some imagery. Reading and interpreting historical narrative has moments of application, like that means we can actually apply it to our lives. But it is mainly telling a story of something that happened one time in history. So listen, Genesis is mainly descriptive. It is describing something that happened in a point in time in history. The history it is narrating for us is the history of mankind and creation. Those two things, mankind and creation. It is broken up into two sections, okay? These two sections are primeval history, chapters 1 through 11, and patriarchal history in chapters 12 through 50, okay? Primeval history, chapters 1 through 11, patriarchal history of Israel, chapters 12 through 50. The title Genesis means book of the beginnings, where it all started from the start. That's what Genesis means. This captures for us where all things got their start, including us, including mankind. The structure of Genesis matters as it begins with the created order in chapters 1 and 2. That's where the created order begins. God creates all things good in chapters 1 and 2. The fall or sin comes into the world in chapter 3. Then you see a story of Abel and Cain in chapter 4. And then you have the descendants to Noah, Noah and the flood, descendants of Noah in chapters 5 through 10. And then finally in chapter 11 you have the story of the Tower of Babel. And then you get to chapter 12 in Genesis. This is what we call a hinge chapter as it links one part of the book to the next. Remember, primeval history to patriarchal history. It links these two together. Chapter 12 is a hinge chapter. So in this section, you have Abraham's story in chapters 12 through 25a, Isaac and Jacob in chapters 25b through chapter 36, and Jacob's sons in chapters 37 through 50. And this is, uh, this is where we see Joseph's story. So we're going to do our very best to cover most of these, okay, most of these chapters. And because Genesis is such a massive book, um, we can't really cover it verse by verse. So as we tackle a chapter, we'll, ch we'll tackle verses within that chapter. Uh, Rusty and I were, were mapping Genesis out just a few weeks ago, and he, Rusty finally looks at me and he's like, bro, we could be in Genesis until the church ends up closing one day many years <laughs> down the road. I mean, we could literally be in Genesis for a long, long time. So we know that we have to, we kind of have to capture this as best as we can. So the end of Genesis, this is, this is key for you to know. The end of Genesis is meant to make us turn the page to Exodus, when the people of Israel are in the land of Egypt. Turn to Genesis chapter 50, Genesis 50, verse 22. It says, so Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, 
Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. The last verse of Genesis. So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And that, that, there's, there's this kind of tension there at the end of Genesis that's saying, hey, turn the page. Turn the page and see what's coming next. So this is how we're going to be approaching Genesis, primarily as historical narrative and themes. We're going to see themes within Genesis, like faith, hope, sacrifice, those kinds of things. We're going to see those things. Where does man come from? What do relationships look like? We're going to be able to see those themes in Genesis. Here's another question. Who wrote Genesis? And who was the original intended audience? So the obvious answer is that God wrote Genesis, but he used Moses to tell the story. Some scholars believe that when Moses was in the tent of meeting, God revealed to him in his own way the story of creation. Look at Exodus 33. Exodus 33, verses 7 through 11. Get there real quick. Exodus, Exodus 33, beginning in verse 7. says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord, who would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart." from the tent. This was a big deal in the, in the life of the people of Israel. When Moses would go into the tent of meeting, it was an act of worship. As, as this, this pillar of cloud would descend on this tent of meeting, and it says there that Moses would speak to God as a friend speaks to God. So the original audience was the people of Israel after they had been delivered by God from slavery in Egypt. The prime, listen to this, the primary education they had was one of Egyptian descent, which would be a belief in many false little g gods. So they, they had to be taught from the beginning who was responsible for all that was seen and even unseen. Genesis is the first of the five books of, the Mo, of, of Moses or the Torah. This is called the Pentateuch. This was the first book that young Jewish children would begin memorizing. Yes, listen, in that day, 
and there are still children who do this, who memorize the Torah. And how many of us take time to even memorize one or two verses? This was a serious thing for them. A sub-narrative of Genesis is that it carries the genealogies of mankind from the first two people created, Adam and Eve. A literary device you see in Genesis is, these are the family records. You see that over and over in Genesis. Or you see just the one word, generations. This, this is telling you that this is capturing for us. This is like the ancient version of Ancestry.com. You can look back and see where the, the families would come from that came from Adam, and, from Adam and Eve. So the question is, Ricky, this sounds like a, like a seminary class. So why is this important? It's important because it gives us a point of origin from an actual created human being. These are our first parents, Adam and Eve. Listen, we do not derive from, we do not come from primordial soup or a monkey that we evolved from. For the Christian, the dawning of creation and mankind, this is not a guessing game, but begins with the triune God, Yahweh, who spoke all things into existence by the power of his word. Look at Psalm 33, Psalm 33, 6. Psalm 33, 6 says this, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. By the word of the capital L-O-R-D, by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were were made, all things were made by God when he spoke them into existence, which is only true about God. God is the only one who can speak anything into existence. So you and I, we need a worldview, especially now in 2024. No matter where you were born or where you have lived most of your life, you will see the world through a particular lens. Maybe it's one that you were taught in school or even at home if you're homeschooled. The way you see the world matters. But my challenge is to you, church. Do you care what worldview you have? If you say you're a Christian, the worldview we should have is a biblical worldview. If the Bible truly is the authority in your life, you will submit to what it says about how the world was made, how it's governed, and where it's headed. So as of today, we find ourselves in the midst of one of the most devastating wildfires in Texas history ever recorded. Millions of acres burned, and hundreds of homes and businesses sit in a pile of ashes now. Livestock lost, and land that served as a farmer's livelihood for many years, all ablaze in a matter of hours. Listen, if your worldview is one that there is no redeeming this, you have no hope. You are left with only despair. But if you have a biblical worldview, 
Beginning in Genesis, you see that there is a creator who is good, who made all things good, yet we fractured it with our sin. Though God cursed the world, we now have it in its current state. He promised one, capital O, one, the seed of the woman who would come and crush the snake and all that it represents. The son of God came. He put on flesh as the person Jesus Christ. He lived, he died, and he rose and ascended to where he awaits the consummation of all things. So to begin at the beginning for these next few months, we must look to what awaits our new beginnings. Turn to the last book, Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to read a few passages out of Revelation. Here's what I want you to do. If you don't mind, I know I told you to turn there, but here's what I'd like for you to do. I'm just going to read this, and I'd like for you to just close your eyes and just imagine this for just a moment. Okay, Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1, and listen to what John the Revelator says. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come up to join us as we will respond in worship here in just a moment. 
want to invite us into this as we do week in and week out. I want to speak first and foremost. If you are here and you have no idea if you're a Christian, my question is to you, where is your hope? Is your hope that you're going to try to be a good enough person and try to know enough information about God that one day when you die, you'll be able to stand before him and say, look how much I know. Look at all the good things I've done. I even went and helped after the fires. I did plenty of good things, God. But listen, if you are not in Christ, if you have not been saved by him, if you have not repented of your sin and placed your faith and your trust in him, been given a new heart, been given a birth from above, listen, on that day you will hear those fateful words, depart from me, I don't know you. So my invitation is to find hope in Christ, to find hope in this book that we hold in our hands that we call the Bible. This collection of 66 perfect books that God speaks of himself, he gives a testimony to the world to say, here I am. This is who I am. Place your faith and your hope in him. You may be connected to someone who lost everything in Fritch or in Stinnett or wherever it might be. You might be connected to someone. You might know of someone. And my question is, where is your hope? Place your hope your faith, your trust in him who will come and make all things right. He will come and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. So if you don't know how to do that, there's nothing special about it. There's no magical prayer to pray. We're not gonna ask you to raise your hand. I'll be in the back of the room. We have some elders here who are gonna be in the back of the room. They love to pray with you. They love to talk to you. They love to walk you through what's happening. If you're feeling the weight of sin crushing you, come to Christ. Repent of your sin. Place your faith and your hope and your trust in him. And if you're here this morning and you're you're like, yes, Ricky, I'm a Christian. I am in Christ. I stand secure in him. My question is, do you have a gospel worldview? Do you have a biblical worldview? Or do you still give in continuously to sin. Listen, we need to see this, all that's happening in our world, not just what's happening here in our community, all that's happening in our world, we need to see it through this. This is the only thing that makes sense in a world that is out of control, in a world that is chaotic. Go back to Tuesday and think about how chaotic that day seemed. Do we leave? Do we evacuate? Where do we go? What do we do? If we have no hope, if we have no biblical gospel worldview, we will only end our lives in despair. So as we respond here in just a moment in worship, my ask is that you would just, you would cast those anxieties at the feet of Christ. And you would say, I I want to learn, as as we learn through Genesis, I want to have a biblical worldview. I want to have a gospel world. I want to see the gospel in Genesis from the very beginning. Help us to do that. Let's pray.